Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Deborah So podcast. My guest this week is James Lindsay. James is the author of Race Marxism and hosts the New Discourses podcast. He's also one of the academics behind the Grievance Studies Affair, along with Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian. This is James's second appearance on my podcast. You can listen to his first appearance on episodes 11 and 17. Helen and Peter have also been on my podcast on episodes 8 and 24, respectively. I will be releasing my most recent conversation with James as two episodes. The first half is this week. The second half will be coming to you next week. And as for parents who have been asking me to do an episode regarding sexual grooming and things that you should look out for in terms of red flags, that is also on the way. So don't worry, I haven't forgotten about that. If you or someone you know has experienced childhood sexual abuse, I would recommend checking out episode 22 with Michael Malice. As always, I want to mention that this podcast should not be used as therapy. If you have concerns about mental health or a child's well-being, I would recommend speaking with a mental health professional. My conversation with James today has been one of my favorite conversations so far in doing this podcast. I think you guys will find it very enlightening. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I read all of them, and you can follow me on social media at Dr. Deborah So. And you can support the podcast on Patreon at Dr. Deborah So. All right. Thank you, James, for coming back on my podcast. Very excited to catch up with you. As I was saying to you, I really enjoyed the Groomer School series that you did for New Discourses. I found it really, really enlightening. I really highly recommend everybody go listen to it. It's a three-part series. I've had suspicions for a while about where a lot of the ideology in education has been coming from, going back as far as kindergarten. And for me, I first started to really pay attention when I noticed gender ideology many of the myths I talk about in the end of gender being taught in classrooms. There's been a lot of discussion more recently on social media, especially with parents posting a lot of the inappropriate things that are being taught to their kids about sexuality. I mean, race is a whole other thing that we'll, we'll, we'll get into as well, but this has been under the guise of comprehensive sex ed in terms of sexuality, sexual orientation, gender identity. All of it is anti-scientific. So I've spoken in favor of comprehensive sex ed in the past, but I'm beginning to see how many of us who have supported it, in my view, have done so without fully realizing what the underlying ideology has been. So I've heard you say at best, comprehensive sex ed has been hijacked, and at worst, it's a Trojan horse. So what is the underlying ideology, and what is the larger goal that, that is being pushed? <laughs> There's a lot that can be said. The underlying ideology is frankly communism, um, just to kind of put it in a word. Uh, and it has hijacked things like comprehensive sex education and social emotional learning and a lot of the programs that are happening within the schools uh, in education more broadly. There are kind of a few pieces that have to be kind of discussed to kind of sum try to summarize the three-part series, you know, succinctly. Mm. There was a Marxist theorist in the 1910s and 20s by the name, well, he actually died in the 1960s. So he continued to work throughout most of the first half of the 20th century uh, by the name of George Lukács. He was Hungarian. He um, is surprisingly articulate and easy to read, in my opinion, which is not typical for, for Marxists. And he realized that if you have the goal of instituting a new society, then what you have to do is you have to break the existing society away from, or you have to break people away from the existing society so you can bring in the new model. And this, of course, is most easily done with the new generation, with children coming up. And what he realized was 
because the cultural Marxists at this time were realizing that Marx's spontaneous workers' revolution probably wasn't coming in Western society. Something in Western society kept things going. Namely, it's that people could build a better life and the middle class was starting to emerge. And so they wanted to attack cultural pillars and they wanted to separate children in particular from the previous generations so they could bring them in bring them up with a whole new model. And what he realized was that you achieve a lot of goals all at the same time if you sexualize children. Mm. If you teach them, you know, as part of a sex education program in schools, things like masturbation, uh, something like kind of the 1920s version of sex and gender ideology, um, sexual liberation kind of themes. If you teach those to children, you achieve a large number of goals at once. First of all, you destabilize the children in terms of their developmental identities, so they become very moldable. You're tapping into something very powerful when you tap into sexual themes with people at any age, even children, and you can create a very confused, developmentally uh, broken person who becomes very moldable to any other kind of ideology. If you can mold them sexually, you can then mold them uh, politically in order to be able to satisfy those interests and needs. That's one thing that he realized with with uh, tapping into children's sexuality. The second thing he realizes is that the children will go home and they will feel alienated from their families and from what they know. They will, they'll, they'll believe that their conditions, their situation is different from everybody else's mom. You don't understand me kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually get a generation of children who will reject the prevailing nation, religion, and family that they see as obsolete and actually restricting them from their sexual liberation. They'll see these sexual mores that the previous generations and uh, believe in, even so much as you know there are boys and there are girls and they are different, or that children shouldn't be sexualized and should be sexually innocent, and that should be maintained and then you know introduced carefully and with with proper mentorship through adolescence. Uh, they'll see those things as oppressive and want to throw them off. So they'll say, you know, mom, you don't understand me. Times are different. These are the kinds of things you can expect now with the kind of gender ideology and all of these, you know, 64, 200 and whatever it is, genders, sexualities, et cetera, they're introducing. <laughs> mom, I'm demisexual. That's not even a real thing. You don't understand. You know, that's, that argument, you want that to happen, to break them away from their family. Secondly, uh, you know, if they appeal to national culture or prevailing culture or if they appeal to, to religious values, they'll see those as obsolete and restrictive and repressive and arbitrary as well. And so you can achieve a large number of goals in terms of trying to groom a new generation for communism by sexualizing children. And Lukács realized that this was extraordinarily destabilizing to the existing society. And so the long, long communist goal which isn't necessarily the goal of all of sex education through all of history, obviously, has been to find ways in so that they can sexualize children, to destabilize their identities so that they become politically moldable, uh, and also just disordered. Just disordered in the personality disordered people are the ideal revolutionaries because they're never satisfied with the circumstances that they're in. We know that the way that you cre create many personality disorders or induce many personality disorders is by having inappropriate sexual and romantic relationships between adults and children during their formative years. Schizoid personality disorder, not that I'm an expert, for example, is hypothesized to be the result of inappropriate romantic relationships or emotional relationships between adults and children around the age of eight. Uh, 
And, and um, just to define uh, schizoid personality disorder, so for people listening, it just it's like um, characterized by a real disinterest in intimate relationships, difficulties in terms of engaging with people, flattened affect, personality disorders. Once you have one, it doesn't go away for life. It's with it doesn't go life. away. So if you read the Marxist literature through the 50s and 60s, what you see is these people, and even into the back to the 30s, you see the Marxists complaining advanced capitalism is stabilizing the working class. And you keep seeing this focus on the stabilization effect of the middle class. Stabilization is the opposite of revolutionary. And so they're very upset with the working class for becoming stabilized and upset with capitalism for figuring out ways to stabilize the, the working class. Personality disordered people, like you said, don't stabilize. Mm -hmm. They're personality disordered and struggle for the rest of their lives. It's very, very difficult to overcome a personality disorder. And so whether it's um, antisocial or borderline or paranoid or schizoidal or whatever else, you know, we might name those being induced is very useful to a communist revolution. And Lukács maybe didn't have, of course, that level of psychological sophistication, but he realized that by sexualizing children, you achieve a large number of the aims in breaking one generation from the next that he needed to accomplish a a, a uh, cultural revolution that would make way for the communist revolution that he was hoping would take place in, say, Hungary or Germany or throughout Europe or even in America. And so there's a very long history to Marxists trying to wield the power of sexuality in children to create a groomable young population that will reject the existing culture and become dependent upon an ideology that's promising them liberation. So that's that's the first part of groomer schools. Actually, the the other two are um, a little more complicated, but uh, we can get into that if you want. So to follow up from what you were saying, so when you mentioned masturbation, obviously I'm not in favor of adults being inappropriate with children. I don't believe that children can consent to sex. Just want to make that very very explicitly clear. From the perspective of a sex educator, though, I could see in best case scenario when when we we talk about why masturbation would be in, say, curriculum. It sounds very inappropriate, but I could see best case scenario someone saying, we want to teach kids that it's very normal, it's not something they should be ashamed about, and so that they know what it is, they have the language for it. And so in the event that they are, say, if they are in a situation in which they are being abused, they can vocalize or they have the language to explain what's happening. Best case interpretation. At the same time, I can totally understand why for a parent or anyone in the general public, if they hear that masturbation is being taught in the classroom, I think some of the materials I've seen are questionable, depending, you know, I've seen this in portrayed in books and you're thinking, this is not the way I think it should be taught necessarily. You wonder what is the underlying motivation for some of these people who are teaching it then. How, how would you address that criticism, I guess, coming from someone who says, no, comprehensive sex ed is, is very innocent. I mean, I, I went through comprehensive sex ed when I was younger, and I can talk a bit about that, or I will talk a bit about that. But what would you say in terms of getting people to understand why this is a concern? Um, I mean, the, there are a number of reasons that it's a concern, um, one of which is that it's very easy to describe that best case scenario uh and then have a massive disconnect from what happens in reality. Um, right now, we're seeing across the country, in the United States at least, one scandal after another after another of, of teachers um, being sexually abusive with children. Well, the problem is, is when you have a program like this that's not being 
very strictly monitored and controlled is that it's very easy for people with nefarious or abusive intent to take it as an opportunity to work their way in and abuse children. And so while I don't necessarily disagree with you about the teaching of vocabulary, the problem is that what you're having is you're now exposing a very large number of children to a, a potential risk in order to try to help a very small number of children who might be being abused at home who lack a vocabulary to say something about it. And so, you know, if we wanted to get, I guess, type one and type two errors, um, this is kind of a classic thing. It's, you know, I would say otherwise, why don't we normally just, you know, screen everybody for cancer or test everybody for a virus or whatever? And it's because uh, when you introduce something that contains a risk, including the risk of false positives, and you do it very broadly, you actually introduce more risk than the amount of problem you 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 prevent. And it's a very difficult statistical argument for people to grasp a lot of times. Um but certainly what you see is that this is a highly exploitable program as well. Um, it's very easy, and we see this you know, on videos all over social media on the regular now, almost daily, where you'll have some teacher declaring that, you know, that they're going to do it this way and that way and the other way, regardless of what they think, what anybody says is the right guideline. They're going to, you know, teach things about this. Then they have, you know, a different set of, of values or perspectives about the issue. Uh, very often, like kind of very often, kind of a very open, um, licentious, if you will, approach to what, you know, teaching sex to children should be about. And the big conflict there besides it often being inappropriate and the person not being professionally qualified to make that determination or to implement those practices is that the parent is getting shut out of this in a way that's um i think very very important uh for the parent not to be shut out of it the parent yeah. should have a lot of a lot of discretion over these things these kinds of programs should be strictly regulated if they're happening at all they should be um probably even opt in rather than opt out. They should not be default. They, I'm, There's just so much opportunity for abuse when you start mixing these things that the relatively small number of children, which in absolute numbers may be a large number, but a small proportion of children who are being abused, who lack the vocabulary, who would benefit from this, does not necessarily, in fact, probably does not justify opening the door to what could be widespread sexual abuse or even both sexual and political grooming, um, which can follow from it very easily, uh, especially when we have right now a prevailing so-called liberationist mindset where all the different forms of liberation are meant to be linked. So if we talk about sexual liberation, we're also talking about liberation from capitalism and oppression of all forms. And then all of a sudden you have all of these ideologies being brought in politically in connection with with that. And so it is a delicate and tricky situation in which there probably is no perfect. But in the attempt to bring this comprehensive sex education in kind of a too open-ended way to everybody, you create a tremendous amount of risk for very little reward. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally agree. I think parental rights are being completely overstepped. I mean, when I, when I took this education back in the day, it was opt-in. So your parents had to consent to it. Right. And just to go back to what you're saying about uh, type one and type two errors. So for people listening, type one error is when you, it's a false positive. So you think you have an effect when you don't versus type two is when it's a false negative. So you don't think you have an effect, but you do. 
So see, when I'm thinking about my time when I took this curriculum, I do think it was helpful. And when I look at the research literature evaluating the effectiveness of these programs, they do show to be effective. So they, they lower, say, teen pregnancy, they lower the likelihood that children will start being sexually active at a younger age. So they'll delay when they first start becoming sexually active, and they will also be more inclined to use contraception, which I think are all good things. I do think there needs to be some form of education that is beyond abstinence only, because abstinence only education just tells kids don't have sex. Wait till wait till marriage and that's it. And it's not effective. I don't think it matters what your values or your religious values are. It just unfortunately is not effective. You can't, you can't just tell kids don't have sex and they're not going to have sex. It's just not realistic. And the thing is, if parents are not having these conversations with kids, the kids are going to go somewhere else to have them. So I think as for parents, I'm, I'm not a parent, but, and I can imagine these are very difficult conversations, very uncomfortable conversations, but if you don't want teachers doing it, you need to be the ones doing it. And if you're not doing it, your kids are going to go elsewhere and other adults are going to be answering their questions. And that very well may be strangers on the internet. I mean, internet grooming is so prevalent right now. Um, since probably when the internet became readily available, um, I would say I've heard all kinds of horror stories of kids being groomed, even on crisis phone lines, every mm -hmm. internet forum possible. It's unbelievable. So... I mean, in terms of my own experiences, I can I speak so positively about it, and I guess because I am only one person, I'm not a whole data set, but when I look at people I know who did not undergo this program when we were kids, these girls, you know, were really happy they didn't have to go to these classes. They were glad their parents didn't let them, didn't sign the consent form, and then they ended up getting pregnant by 14. So they couldn't even finish high school, and they had to, you know, take care of their baby. And I see other people making really bad decisions in terms of their sexual health. They don't really know anything about getting tested for sexually transmitted infections, how to bring up these conversations, even to know what symptoms look like in terms of sexually transmitted infections, mm -hmm. or the fact that some of them are asymptomatic, so you might not even know that you have one, or that when you're dating mm -hmm. someone new, you should probably talk about your sexual health and all of these mm -hmm. things. And so my question for you, James, is how can we impart that information on young people in this climate? Is it even possible for educators to do that because education has become so full of activism? See, that's where I get actually really worried when, you know, I listen to all of this and I keep keep thinking in my head is like the building's on fire the building's on fire there's as you said there's so much activism that's infused with all of this that has agendas that will co-opt onto these or hijack these um, otherwise beneficial programs um, that when engaged in responsibly and reasonably and narrow in scope and professionally are quite beneficial we are in a bad situation i guess is a good way to summarize this and the activists have co-opted so much of what's going on and they've done so so successfully that um in the language of of the lord of the rings i think many fair things shall fade uh we kind of are i think we're going to lose some things and have to rebuild them from a, a position of um more caution after we deal with the activism problem. But we're in a situation right now where, from my perspective, I look at what's going on in the schools. I also agree about the online grooming, which is a catastrophe. It is mm -hmm. actually worse than what's going on in the schools by probably yeah. two orders of magnitude. Um, and what I look at when I see this situation is that the, the school the school is on fire or and we, we have to get the kids out of danger before we try to figure out what to do about the school or the fire. Um, and so I don't know. Uh, I 
almost am inclined toward the meme of we need to stop all of this until we figure out what's going on. Um, <sighs> however, the, that's worded. Uh, and then start with a very kind of ground up reform movement because this stuff has been hijacked. Um, what's happening now has very dangerous and nefarious purposes to it. And uh, I don't think while we can point to, and you know, I went through some of the same programs that you're talking about and they were opt in at sixth grade, seventh grade and so mm -hmm. on. And people asked me, actually, I was in a conversation the other day about that. And somebody asked me, well, what do you remember about your sex ed class? And I, in sixth grade, I remember two things. One, that the nurse who taught it was not particularly attractive and we were all horrified and decided we never wanted to have sex ever. <laughs> and then secondly, that we had this kind of thing where we had to go drop beads of different colors to sh that indicated, you know, how sexually active we've been, but it was all private and in secret. You know, we went out one at a time into this place and we picked whatever color we wanted and put it in the jar and then somebody counted all of them later. And what I look back at that and think purpose? that's yeah. so fake because they just wanted to have a profile and say, this is what's really going on. And okay. it turned out that, you know, you know, blue bead or something meant that you hadn't even kissed anybody or something like that. And like, 70% of the beads were blue or something. So I kind of <laughs> wanted to give the sense that it was normal, that you're not like, okay, you know, whatever. But of course, looking back on it, because it was all, it, it was sixth graders who are still young and sweet and somewhat innocent. But you know that there's kids that are like grabbing the black bead for like, you know, orgies <laughs> or whatever and just throwing a handful of them in there because they can. Um, I mean, I knew a couple of the kids who would have done that. So, you know, it wasn't me. I wasn't funny yet. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised <laughs> that people were so innocent or they were they were open about their innocence. I would have assumed that they would be pretending that they were more sexually yeah, experienced than they were. I know. I mean, 70 percent in sixth grade. I don't know. I mean, these are like 11 year olds. So I don't know how that's <laughs> probably they probably were exaggerating as it was. So, I mean, it's not, you know, scientific or useful. I don't even know what it was for. But those are the only two things I remember from it. Um I, I literally don't remember anything else. The rest of it was kind of integrated, you know, sexual health and sexually transmitted infections were integrated into our health class pretty mm. directly. Um, and that was in high school and not opt in. Uh, it was opt out if you didn't want to participate in it. So I don't know. Um, all I know is that what's happening now is upsetting parents to a degree where it's not your kind of normal you know, kind of socially conservative people being grumbling about something that they're hap that's happening that they're not comfortable with. It's an emergency is taking place. Uh, children are being being groomed, you know, in a number of ways. And while that's happening on the internet, and while there's probably a baseline where the a, a tragic baseline where that's happening anyway, the schools should certainly not be. Um, encouraging it, even if they're doing so by accident, even if they think they have a program that helps and they're ham fisting it. Uh, and I hear this state after state after state, very young children, you know, seven, eight years old coming home and having, you know, pretty advanced sexual questions and conversations they're trying to have with their parents about what they learned in school. And parents are appalled and very upset and very nervous. And then we see, you know, the introduction of the gender ideology on top of you know, what should, it's one thing. It's like, how do you, you know, apply a condom to, you know, a banana or something or a cucumber mm -hmm. or some phallic object? How do you, how do you work this thing? Right. That's one thing. It's another thing. And what, why is it important? What's sexual health and blah, blah, blah. It's another thing entirely to say, oh, you know, well, your sexuality is very fluid and it can be, 
you can change. Do you feel like a boy today? Do you feel like a girl today? Who are your you attracted can to? Become Here's a vagina. Yeah. yeah, well, that too. I just saw something on Twitter last night and I decided to leave the poor person alone. But it was like, you know, my surgery has been approved and my penis is going to become a vagina. And I was like, it's going to become something, but it's not going to become a vagina. <laughs> That's what I thought in my head. It's going to become something, but not that. Yeah. Um, that's not how that works. That's not how any of this works. And so, you know, these kinds of things are completely different. They are not the things nobody was talking about that, maybe except in California or something, when you and I would have been going through these programs. Mm -hmm. And this is another unfortunate manipulation that you run into because you say, you know, you look at the data and it's very beneficial in a lot of regards and you see the statistical trends and how they change. And then all of a sudden the program changes and they refer back to the data from the previous program mm. while they're act actually implementing a new program that doesn't have any data supporting it or that has data that aren't uh, nearly as positive. Yeah. Uh, and this is a common, this is the hijacking or the Trojan yeah. horse thing. And so right now, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know how to continue these things in the present environment where activism characterizes a prevailing mode, if not the prevailing mode, of engaging in education. If you believe that the purpose of education is to be political, as many, many teachers and administrators now do, um, this, is a, this is an environment in which something that requires a lot of safeguarding, like comprehensive sex education, is going to be one of the first things that has to go. It, it's too it introduces too much risk to the children when you have an inappropriate environment. That's the kind of thing that you really need a safe and secure environment to implement responsibly. Mm -hmm. And when you have a very irresponsible environment happening, like one run by activists who are caught up in weird ideologies, that's one of those things that it's, you just have to protect people from it um, because it's too easy to manipulate and the consequences of those manipulations are too high. Yeah, I think it's one thing if you could assemble a group of experts who are politically neutral and just base it on the scientific research, like legitimate scientific research that is apolitical and that is not being used to, to justify certain things that when they're not saying it, like you're saying how they will take previous findings and use it to justify a new curriculum when the two things have nothing in common. But it is so impossible. And it's amazing for me because I look at some people I know. These are probably not people I would consider to be close colleagues or mentors of mine. But even on social media, many of the people I've known over the years, and, and many of them who are sex educators, they've all got the pronouns in the bio, and they're all tweeting about all this stuff, how capitalism is bad. I'm thinking, what what happened? There was, did your political views completely change in the last like five, 10 years? Or are you just going along with this because it's trendy? Do you actually genuinely believe it? So, yeah, the fact that, that this angle is not even being taken into consideration in these conversations is really concerning. How is it that, uh, that education has become so far left? Because I feel like this came, this has just become really apparent in the last five years, but this obviously has been brewing for a while. Yeah, I mean, the history of this is really interesting. There's the new left, which is this very radical thing in the 60s and early 70s really burned itself out, and most of its activists became scholars, in particular education scholars, K-12 through activists and, and uh, professors, uh, and many in colleges of education. And so this critical turn in education, in other words, the infiltration of educational administrative apparatuses and teaching colleges started really in earnest in the 1970s. And by the 80s, by 1985, they were importing Marxist education theory as kind of the primary direction for which education would go. 
And so now we're a couple of generations down the pike from this. How did it become so invested with leftist ideology? Well, um, this creates a political selection pressure. These are the ideas. So who's going to come in? Well, people who are more predisposed to these ideas, who is going to finish people who are more amenable to these ideas, whose projects are going to get approved, who's going to get the higher grades, et cetera, will people who align with the ideology. And so you actually have this kind of incentive structure that, that, that concentrates the ideology over time, as happens anytime a particular political ideology takes over an institution um, that works as kind of a funnel or a, a filter, a sieve or whatever for who gets to become professionals in, in, in the discipline. This is the same thing that happened in academia more generally. Mm -hmm. You had a massive influx of leftists into the thing who then slowly started to select people like themselves and select for research that meets their views. This is the weakness of peer review is that the peers are not necessarily contrarian peers who have different presuppositions or different political uh, background or anything like this. They, in fact, can concentrate over time. So academia, in particular, colleges of education, have has, has been drifting left very um, heavily. And this is, in fact, an accelerating process until you kind of get hegemony within. And so the colleges of education have had a leftist and, in fact, Marxist hegemony probably at least since the 90s, maybe as early as 85. When they're starting to adopt books which happened in 85 and 86, which are absolutely nakedly, explicitly Marxist, quoting Marx, quoting Lenin, praising Mao, praising Che Guevara, and things like this as the, oh the role models. <laughs> literally, literally, this is what they're... The only one they don't praise is Stalin. They all don't praise <laughs> Stalin. They, they've got everybody else, though. And <laughs> when you have this is what's going on, being adopted by schools of education across North America by 85, 86, which is when that happened, the political pressure to conform to that, especially given how intolerant that view is, is just going to concentrate over time. And so that's really what, what has happened. They, they, the activists from the 60s, mostly Marxists and radicals, all decided that the next path for their success would be to abandon the radical new left and create what Gottsman calls the academic left and to try to remake academia to fight a generational transformation of society. Why do we see it so much in the last few years? Well, a plant grows, the seed sprouts, the roots grow underground first, a little thing pops up, it gets taller, it grows. What is it? And then wham, you have a sunflower all of a sudden one day that wasn't there before. Mm. And so it hit the point of blooming. And so now everybody sees what's going on. But it's been creeping for about 50 years. Um, really, really unfortunate that uh, essentially control of colleges of education was ceded to leftists more or less completely by um, 30 or 40 years ago. Wow. In terms of queer theorists more specifically, because I, I know you've talked about how they have, mm -hmm. they want to keep their quote-unquote revolutionary energy going. They don't want society to mm -hmm. stabilize. And so they focus on the most, the smallest minority in society to try and keep them angry and, and unsettled. So mm -hmm. in the context of pedophilia, so mm -hmm. I've done brain imaging in the past on pedophilia. Uh, the lab I worked in, we had a $1.2 million grant from the Canadian government to do our research. I was doing brain imaging research. And as far as we know from the research, which is, I would say, not marred by activism yet, 
because I know the people who are doing this work, pedophilia is biological. So it's something that cannot be changed. It can't be cured. And I think that does have implications for how we treat it and also how we prevent sexual abuse of kids. So my concern always mm -hmm. comes back to how are we going to protect kids? We need to be mm -hmm. able to talk about this objectively so that we can protect kids. I see the same issues or my, my concerns are being raised in that you now we're seeing conversations about how pedophiles need to be normalized or pedophilia needs to be normalized. And again, I think there's a difference in terms of what some of my colleagues are doing in terms of wanting to talk about this more from an evidence-based perspective as opposed to it being emotionally driven. To, cause for many people, because it is so understandably uncomfortable, people say, I don't want to hear about this at all. I don't want to, mm -hmm. I don't want to think about this being biological. I don't want to think about people wanting to have sex with kids at all, whether just not talk about it. And if you try to research this or open a conversation about it, then you must be guilty by association as well. But mm -hmm. I, I don't think that helps. I also don't like the direction that we're going in and that people are now starting to say, well, do pedophiles deserve particular rights? Are they a protected class, right? Is this an identity? Or they try to compare pedophilia to being gay and that it's not a choice, which of course, not the same thing. I wanna be very clear about that. There are a lot of harmful stereotypes that gay people face about any of this regarding children, which are not true. Oh, that's to say, I mean, I, five years ago, I would have said, no, that's ridiculous. I, I do not see people using their pedophilic class as a way to say, I deserve particular rights. But I've, the, again, the things I've seen happen with gender in the last few years, I, I my mind has been absolutely blown in terms of what, what's being taught to kids, in terms of the policies that are putting, being put in place that put kids very much at risk. The fact that male sex offenders, male rapists are being housed in women's prisons, I never thought I'd ever see that happening. And the fact that mm -hmm. challenging that is considered hateful is absolutely insane to me. So now with this, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, and say there's a, a pedophile who is convicted of a child sex offense who is not allowed to be hired, won't be hired out of daycare to, to sue for discrimination. It sounds crazy mm -hmm. now, but I actually don't think it's that far off in a few years. I would not be surprised. So... Again, is am I off here or do you? Is no, you're, you're <laughs> correct. This is a really difficult issue um, to the degree that that um, pedophilia is biologically based. Those people have seriously lost a lottery. They have seriously lost. Now, what we have here is an absolutely non-negotiable position, though, because children cannot con consent to sex. Right. So they're they they don't. When I say they lost it. This isn't like, well, they're gay, and so, you know, it's a complicated situation, and a broadly, if to use the term without the pejorative attached to it, heteronormative society, et cetera, mm -hmm. or broadly heterosexual society. So there are special challenges. You know, Dan Savage has been very good about that. It gets better to deal with those special challenges. Mm -hmm. Now, here there's an absolute difference. There is no consensual interaction whatsoever, and the line has to be drawn very hard. Um so it's a very unfortunate situation to find out that this may be biological, but there's there's not a resolution to this. There is no, well, let's give you some permission because you just, you didn't mean to be this way. Yeah, no. It just sucks. And because protecting the kids is vastly more important. Um, and this is, this is the, the general trick. You see this even with Michel Foucault going all the way back to his um, history of sexuality, which is kind of this 
grand postmodern text. And of course, Michel Foucault was not exactly Marxist anymore. He despaired of Marxism as well, but he's still in the same line of thinking. And he was trying to separate the separate out the difference between reality and the social construction. And this is what queer theorists always want to do. So there's this reality, maybe. And then there's this social construction about pedophilia and who deserves rights and whatever. And they want to play over here in social construction because social construction for them is largely arbitrary and can be modified and can be changed. This is why you see virtually Michel Foucault among them, all of the postmodern thinkers in the 70s signing the petition to drop the age of consent law in France, which at the time was 15, um, as it was, because they wanted to, to make it completely arbitrary and make it all about social construction. And this is where you'll see people trying to make what I think is a very specious argument, in fact, dangerous argument, that, well, sometimes let's say that there's a you know teenager and an adult and they're attracted to one another and they have sex or whatever it is. And then the younger person says, you know, well, I wanted that and I consented to that and therefore we should honor that because it's up to that. This is not correct. This is that they are a minor and... I get it that there's some arbitrariness in how we define minor, 16, 17, 18, 19, whatever age we choose to draw that line. But below, certainly within the terms of brain development, but certainly below a certain line, you are not able to consent to those kinds of decisions. And it's too risky that adults could groom you. So you really do have this ugly situation where the social construction is not adequate to say, well, these people are being excluded based on something that they can't help, and it's actually the social construction of pedophilia, these so-called minor attracted persons who may or may not act on it, and we have to do this. This is a Trojan horse for groomers. This is what it's going to be. It's the same thing, that we can sit back, we can detach ourselves as academics, and we can go into rarefied, perfect idea land and think, well, if we were just very cautious, you have to think about how this will be gamed. Just like in the, the example you brought up is perfect, just like people who go to prison for rape and then say, I'm a woman, put me in the women's prison, you have to, or you're discriminating against me. You have to see how this will be gamed by people who are not perfectly detached, rarefied, responsible adults. Mm-hmm. You, this will be taken advantage of viciously and cruelly by people who are, are predators. There, there's no way around that fact. And so... I think that the line here has to be drawn very hard and we have to be cognizant of the fact that there are people who are looking to, there are people who are probably just kind hearted and say, well, it's not their fault and we have to figure this out. But the issue is, again, unlike with homosexuality, unlike with trans, if you want to transition as an adult, that's your own business. Um, But you have, you do not have the same situation here because in those cases you have adults making decisions as adults with adults. And here you have adults making decisions that implicate children, which is a completely different category of thing. And so I don't know what the right answer is, except that protecting kids has to be the highest priority um, from any potential open door to this kind of abuse. And like you said, we are a few years away from somebody who is a, you know, convicted child abuser suing and saying, well, I can't help it. And I am a protected class and I should be allowed to work in this daycare or this school or whatever else on the path that it's going now. That's the back door. Um, and so I, I see it and and winning and winning. Yeah. (laughs) I see this as, as I, as a line that perhaps does create some unfortunate losers in society for whatever reason, whether it was 
you know, the way they were born, whether it was the way that some kind of abuse, physical or, or emotional or whatever, in early childhood, whatever it happened to be, that made the, their situation this way. It is not a situation that can be tolerated um, and extended special protections and rights because, the, to, to my mind, the rights of children exceed those and the rights of parents to protect their children exceed those rather tremendously. Uh, I mean, not even close. So um, there will be the bid, though. There, there have been the bids to shift from pedophile to minor attracted person to say that, well, they're attracted, it's beyond their control, and maybe they'll act on it and maybe they won't. Um, all we see in the past several years is backdoors into this kind of stuff, backdoors into how can we open a door and then people who are going to take advantage of that open door do so. And so with queer theory, you see the defense of pedophilia. You, def you see the idea that perhaps age is just socially constructed. Perhaps consent is just socially constructed. Perhaps childhood innocence is just socially constructed. And in fact, a way to perpetuate uh, the existing capitalist patriarchy or whatever it happens to be. Um, as it turns out, just to tie in with education, Marxist critique is the first stage. The second stage is post-structuralist feminism, which is where all of queer theory grew from. And the third is critical theories of race. Oh, um, God. <laughs> I know. It's like right, right there. I would say in black and white, but it's in green and white, as it turns <laughs> out. The book is green and the I think maybe it's green and maroon. It's green and something. Marxist critique, post-structuralist feminism. So thus queer theory eventually, because that's where that went. And uh, critical theories of race are what transformed education into the nightmare that people are staring at today wondering what to do. Uh, so, you know, that is a complicated and thorny topic. It's not a pleasant topic to talk about, but I think that the line has to be drawn that we determine a agreeable age of consent in the United States from most states, it's or in many states, it's 18. Broadly speaking, it's 18. Some countries or states do differently, but there's an age of consent and that becomes inviolable, absolutely inviolable. And uh, you can make whatever arguments about, you know, brain structure that you want, it doesn't change the fact that the brain structure of the child can't consent. Mm -hmm. And it, that that's another, and, and that has to be protected. Um, and so what the solution to that problem is, I don't know, but this is a door that, that cannot be opened. Uh, and playing around in social constructions and all of this nonsense um, is just a backdoor or Trojan horse way to get uh, abuse in. Um, so I would, uh, I have to draw a very hard line on that. Yeah. Well, you make a good segue into my next question about race, but just to go back to the point about male rapists and female prisons for people listening, I want to also be clear that these are not transgender people. I mean, these people might say that they are experiencing gender dysphoria, but I would say most transgender people, everyday trans people, are horrified by this as much as non-transgender people are. They're not in favor of this. It's the activists who don't care about anybody but their particular agenda who are pushing this. This is not something that everyday trans people want. They do not want male rapists in women's prisons. In terms of the discussion of critical race theory, I've noticed, and Race Marxism is a great book. Please, everybody, go get it. It's